this summer at Holy Cross, we are diving into the book of Psalms. We'll be looking at the different types of Psalms and the themes that are contained in this book as a whole. We especially want you to learn about how we as believers can relate to the emotions in the Psalms and learn to pray through those in your everyday life. Join us now as we unpack another Psalm. To speak to us, to open the scriptures, to take my words and fill them to fill our hearts and our minds that we might be led to Jesus. We pray, Lord, in his name. Amen. Please be seated. We continue this morning in our sermon series, Let's Be Honest, Praying the Psalms. And as I've said each week at the beginning of my sermon, the Psalms are powerful because they invite us to be real with God. They invite us to real communication, a real relationship. They invite us to come as we are, no matter what's going on, no matter what we are experiencing. The Psalms help us learn not to pose in front of God, not to hide from our own hearts, And not to give into the temptation that we will invariably face to put a religious veneer on the hard things of life. To not really deal with what's happening to us. I love something that the third century theologian Athanasius of Alexandria said about the Psalms. He said, most of scripture speaks to us, but the Psalms speak for us. Most of Scripture speaks to us, revealing who God is, helping us to know what God is like, but the Psalms speak for us to God. He's the one who comes to meet us where our hearts actually are, not where they should be. Where they are, not where they should be. And that brings us to today's text, Psalm 137. It is an imprecatory psalm. Everybody say imprecatory. The the reason I ask you to do this, you, you maybe have never heard that word before. You certainly don't use it when you're at the office or at school. So it's good to hear it and that helps it to stick. The the imprecatory psalms are easy to pick out because they sound so harsh to our ears. They're really intense. And they often have within them a call for justice or even a call for judgment. Psalm 137 is probably one of the most challenging psalms for our modern ears, for us to hear, because it sounds barbaric. Especially that last line. I'm glad that the reader read it and not you guys. You probably feel that way too. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. You probably haven't actually heard this preached before. I know I've never heard it preached before today. But I'm one to dive in where maybe others fear to tread. I think sometimes Christians are actually embarrassed when they come across psalms like this, scriptures like this. This is part of that part of the Bible we don't like, that yucky Old Testament wrathful stuff. Like, ugh. But but here's the thing. I I think that this is a very important psalm. And even though it's hard for us to engage with, it may actually be really a roadway to freedom for some of us along the way. Now, it's embarrassing sounded and sounding, and it seems far away from what we heard Jesus say there in Matthew. 
And so, so we want to see if we can make our way from one to the other, figuring out how do these things hold together. If it's true that what the Bible says about itself, that all Scripture is God-breathed, God-inspired, useful for teaching, correcting, reproving, that the man or woman of God might grow to maturity, then surely there must be something, even in a psalm like this, that's so hard for us. There must be something in it that might help us along the way. And here's the thing. Even though the specific circumstances of this psalm and your life and my life are pretty far away from each other, there is still something that it invites us to. And it invites a question. The question is this. Is there anything too hard for God? Is there anything too hard for God? might say it another way. Is there anything in your heart that God can't handle? Is there anything in your heart that God can't handle? If you think the answer is yes, then I would steal a quote from theologian J.B. Phillips who says, your God is too small. And perhaps you need to trade that God in for the real God of the Bible. And Psalm 137 might be the help you need. So this is one of those Psalms that context is really important. Um, context really helps, and if you don't understand what's going on, it'll make it hard to understand what the psalmist is talking about. Of all the psalms, this is the one that we can most clearly date. We know that it has to do with a historical event. And the event that it's referencing is the exile of the Jewish people from Judea, that's the southern kingdom, when Babylon came and destroyed Jerusalem and carried the people off into exile, into slavery. The psalm is written either from the exile in the midst of their slavery or just after it when they're coming back to Jerusalem. Listen to these words in verses 1 and 2. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows, there we hung up our lyres. So they're in Babylon by a river, probably the Tigris or the Euphrates rivers, and they are dealing with what has happened to them. They're struggling with what they've been through. They are experiencing really probably post-traumatic shock, stress. They're thinking about what they've been through, remembering all that's happened, all they've lost. Their homes have been destroyed. Their nation has been devastated. Their wives and their daughters have been violated. That sounds ringing in their hearts. Their children have been killed. And now they're in slavery. The temple of God, the place where God met with his people, has been completely wiped out. And they have no hope for the future. And so they sit and they weep. They're overcome with the depth of the pain that they are dealing with. They say, we're just going to hang up our lyres, our guitars, if you will. Because we're so sick, we can't even sing anymore. Have you ever noticed that it's a lot easier when things are going your way, when life is smooth sailing to sing and to worship God? 
But when things are really hard, it takes a lot more effort. There's a greater struggle. There's a deeper intensity when you're hurting or you're anxious or you're grieving the loss of someone you love. When you're sick and your body's just not working, it's really hard to sing and to worship. And yet this is the very place where the psalm can help us the most. The reason is because we live in a culture in America, but particularly in the South, that doesn't do grief well on the whole. Like as soon as the casseroles are ended, you're supposed to be done with your grieving. Right? We feed people after someone dies, and by the time the casseroles stop, all right, put your makeup on, let's get moving, get up and at them. Suck it up, press on, get back to work, get going. But if you've ever been through a deep grief, you know that it just doesn't work that way. There are some days you can barely get out of bed because of the heaviness that you're experiencing. You can't just put a happy face on to get busy and get moving to suck it up. When my dad died and we went off to, we had just gone to seminary. He died. We went to seminary. We we're in this place. I've talked about this before, but everybody was so happy around us because all of us had left everything behind to go and serve the Lord, to learn about the things of God, to be his people. And I would sit in chapel and look around at all these people with their hands up and the joy of the Lord on their faces. And all I could think was, I'm dying inside. I remember when Catherine's father died. We were at this church, wonderful worship, a great band, beautiful songs to the Lord, and I can remember looking out of the corner of my eye and just seeing tears streaming down her face because she was grieving the loss of her daddy, the one whom she loved so much. The psalmist is honest enough to admit his pain before God. He's dealing with what's actually going on in his heart. Verse 4, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How in the world can we do it? He's not looking for a pep talk here. He's not looking for easy answers or a quick fix. And sadly, that's often what we do in our culture. We try to slap a quick band-aid on it and move it on, and, and it just doesn't work. There are no easy answers. But there is a lot of what I call plastic religion around. Plastic religion looks good on the surface, but there's nothing underneath. And and we almost demand that of people if they don't get well quick enough. And we do a great disservice to them. I, I just have to say something here because, like I've heard this before, it makes me crazy when someone's dealt with such a deep grief. Say a parent has lost a child. The worst thing you could possibly do is say, well, God needed another little angel. That's terrible theology, and that doesn't help. But it, 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 it's that discomfort that we want to fix it and we don't know how. You know what really serves people well? Don't say anything. Sit in the pain with them. There's a story about a little girl who came home. She was late getting home, and her mother was like, where have you been? And she said, well, I was with my friend. And well, what were you doing? Well, her, her dolly broke, and I had to help her fix it. Mother said, How, how'd you help her fix it? She said, well, I sat there and I cried with her. That's what people need in grief. They need people without easy answers who will come alongside and sit in the pain and love you well enough to not try to fix it. The psalmist doesn't want a pep talk. 
John Kiesler writes this. If it's too hard to worship through your tears, then perhaps you should try to worship God with your tears. If a weeping heart is your true heart, that's what God wants, your true heart. Not your presentable heart. Your true face, not your best face. And of course, the pain that the psalmist describes goes even deeper because in the midst of this pain, they're being mocked by their captors. Verse 3, For there are captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. This is what we call being kicked when you're down, right? Having salt rubbed into the wound. The Babylonians who have all the power are forcing them to sing songs about Zion. And if you know anything about the songs of Zion, they're songs of praise, they're songs of joy, they're songs of worship of the living God. And they usually had to do with how great God is and how much he will take care of his people. And so they're being mocked in their pain. It's as though the Babylonians are saying, where's your God now? Where is he? They probably wanted them to sing Psalm 46, what we heard about last week. There is God in the midst of her. He's going to take care of her. Well, where is this God now? Now, the thing about this pain that they're experiencing in the exile is not only is it the pain of all they've lost, but you need to understand it's pain they brought on themselves. Over and over and over, God had said to them, come back to me, come back to me, come back to me. And yet they kept running away to the things of the world. They kept doing life just like all the people around them. They wanted to be just like the kids at school. They wanted to be just like the people in their offices. They wanted to be just like all the other folks. And in so doing that, they walked away from God. And he called them back, and he called them back, and he sent them prophets, and he declared his love, and yet they said no. And so the exile comes. As they're in that place, they're coming to grips not only with the pain of all that's happened, but they're starting to recognize this is our own doing. And that's a horrible place, but it's also usually a place of freedom. When your sin, your choices have caught up with you and you hit the bottom and you recognize your profound powerlessness to fix what's going on, but you're starting to get honest, you're starting to deal in truth, and you're starting to remember, remember who God is, remember where he called you from, remember who you are in your true self. And that's what they say in verses 5 and 6. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. That would be like one of our guitarists saying, may may I not be able to play guitar anymore. Or one of our vocalists saying, may I not be able to sing, let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy, they're beginning to remember. And that's a good thing, but it's often an incredibly painful thing. I love one of, the, one of the most profound parables in Luke 15. Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. There's this wonderful line. It says, but when he came to himself, the son remembered, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, 
but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and I have sinned before you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I walked out on you, God. My heart is ravished and broken because of it. But I remember, I remember what it was like. I remember who you are. I remember who I am to you. Oh God, forgive me. We've got to come to our senses before we'll return. You might be in that place where life's catching up with you, where, where things aren't working, and, and it could be because of things that you've done. Remember who you are. Come to your senses. Your father has more than enough to eat. And so they're in this place, this place of pain, and that brings us to the hardest part of this, of this psalm, Right? It's the call for God's intervention. They're calling for justice and they're calling for judgment. Now, before I dive into it, this is not prescriptive. Okay, and I'll I'll explain that in a moment. Verse 7, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. The Edomites... There's a lot in the Bible about the Edomites. They were not good people. But they were close neighbors with the Israelites. In fact, some of them were cousins. And yet when the Babylonians came to destroy Jerusalem, the Edomites were there going, wipe them out, wipe them out. And what this points to is something that's so important to recognize is that the closer the relationship in the midst of a betrayal, the deeper the pain goes. And the louder the cry for justice. Talk to any wife whose husband has gotten caught up in a pornography addiction or any husband whose wife has betrayed him through an extramarital affair. Talk to any person who's been abused by a family member, who's been violated by a neighbor. The closer the relationship, the deeper the betrayal, the deeper the heartache that it causes. And so in the midst of this pain, in the midst of beginning to remember who they are, they also are beginning to go, wait a minute, this is not right. This is not okay. And this is so important in the process of healing. You see, the reason why so many of us get stuck and never get free is because we jump as Christians too quickly to Jesus' words. Turn the other cheek, right? Do good to those who persecute you. Uh, Bless those who persecute you. Love your enemies. And we never pass through this stage of dealing with the injustice of what the Edomites have done to us. You have got to own the pain. You have got to see it for what it is. Not to get even. That's what the sinful heart wants to do. That's what the fallen self wants to do. That's what people do all the time. That's not what Christians do. But what we have to do is be honest enough to honor our lives and our hearts and go, the pain is real. The injustice my child experienced can never be right. The sorrow of my heart is absolutely devastating. Oh God, I own it before you. And what they did to me, oh, it's the worst, oh God. 
Until you walk through your pain, you don't get free. Until you name the depth of the devastation you've experienced and you allow yourself before God to feel it, you never get loose from it. And that's why this psalm's important. Because it invites people like us who live in a culture that minimizes our emotional lives and shuts down the pain we experience. It points us to the way of healing and freedom, dealing with it before God. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. This is just speaking back to God what God has already said. The Edomites had devastated God's people, and God said he would repay them. And so they're basically just praying back to God his own words. God, do to them what they've done to us. They've dashed our our kids. Would you dash their kids? Now, this is why it's not prescriptive. Because as Christians, we're we're not called to want other people's destruction. But what we are called to do is recognize that's where our hearts really go. That's where left to ourselves, we will end up. It's uncomfortable because it's us. That's what human hearts are like. And and so we go to God and we say to him, the depth of the pain is real. Oh God, I cry out to you for justice. But in crying out for justice, I have to go to the cross. See, the Psalms is not the last word on pain, sorrow, and injustice. The cross of Jesus is. And on the cross of Jesus, the only one who really could demand justice, the only one who had not done anything wrong, the only one who had never sinned, the only one who could have called a legion of angels to come and avenge the betrayal that was going on against him, on that cross he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And if you're a Christian... And you've come to the place of the cross of Jesus. And you've recognized the real reason he's on that cross is not because of their sin, it's because of mine. And yet he has forgiven me totally and completely and fully the depth of the brokenness of my life which I have committed against him. If he has been willing to forgive me, then who am I to hold a grudge against another? Who am I to demand justice for them when I've received mercy myself? Who am I who's been made a child of the living God to say, banish them to outer darkness? The heart that's been to the cross, that's dealt with its pain, that's recognized the evil that's been committed against it, and yet looks at the Holy One in that place, that's the heart that can say, Father, because of what Jesus has done, forgive them. And that's a miracle. It's a miracle of grace. That's the power of the living God. And that's what makes our faith different from every other one. Our God suffers to set us free. Our God suffers to make us whole. Our God delivers by taking upon himself the injustice and the betrayal of the world. 
That's how much He loves you. That's how powerful He is. And when you've been to that place, you can begin to turn to those who are still lost, who are still hurting, who are still broken, and, and you don't have to fix it. But you can bring them to the one who can. That's what the world desperately needs. That's what we need. Let's pray. Oh God, forgive us the place where we harbor these long-standing grudges. But Lord, we've got to admit before you the depth of the pain so that you might set us free. Would you give us that grace as individuals and as a community that we would be a people that extend mercy because we've received it? That we would be people who give grace because we've received it? God, do that work in us, in each of our hearts, that Jesus might be glorified. It is in his most precious and powerful and beautiful name that we pray. Amen.